Hey everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and I'm believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlist clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com slash sleep with me that's spoke.com slash sleep with me check it out uh and i'll see you in golden gate park at stowe lake bye guys i want to tell you about a great sponsor i have bompus they're premium high performance athletic socks and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off and because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters for every pair of socks purchased bompus donates one pair of those to those in need almost one million pairs donated to date 15 percent off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. That is what you're listening to, by the way, if you didn't know. If you didn't know. And my theme music there is by a band called Les Blanks. Check them out, lesblanks.com. If, you ha if this is the first time you're listening to my show, thank you very much for taking the time out to do so. It is just what the title there implies. I have a conversation with somebody super-duper fascinating. Someone usually smarter than me. Ain't too hard to do. Uh, today's conversation is with Bernadine Mellis. She's a fascinating, fascinating woman. In a, in a way, this show is part, uh, kind of a part two. I wanted uh, with my interview with Dennis Cunningham, the uh, legendary civil rights lawyer. Bernadine made a documentary about one of his uh, cases where he was defending Judy Berry, uh, the uh, deceased environmentalist. Um, and I wanted to have these those two episodes together with and talk to Bernadine about what it was like to make a documentary about her father and this and and Judy Berry, which and just scheduling and weirdness we weren't able to couple these together. Bernadine is super fascinating. We get into we cram a lot of subjects into this one hour, um, and I frankly I left uh, a, a lot smarter and a bit more wise to some things in the world. She's super great. Um, before we get into this conversation, I want there's something I noticed. I saw an article the other day in in, um, in my hometown, Chicago. The metro trains that go out to the suburbs or whatnot have silent cars now. I find that really we have to have cars. 
where people can't be assholes and then you could go and talk loudly in other cars and be an asshole. I find that really a sad statement about our society that people are losing such a sense of their politeness and their awareness of those around them that we have to have specific spaces that say, hey, don't be a loud-mouthed asshole. Talk on your phone somewhere else. People want to actually be silent and read or not hear you talk on your goddamn phone <laughs> or play music on your phone. Because I've seen, I've seen people do that now where they play videos and music on their speaker phone, on their, on their goddamn cell phone in a public place like everybody else wants to l- listen in on your goddamn ESPN sports video or your shitty rap music, which I saw two people doing that in a line in a courthouse, which seems like the most inappropriate or place where like maybe a cop would come and hit you with a nightstick. And I'm not pro uh, police brutality, but if you're playing shitty two live crew type rap music on your cell phone in a public place, I'm okay with you being hit with, or your ESPN video. I'm okay with you being hit with a stick. <laughs> not that I condone violence. And it's weird because I find this behavior is making it more challenging for me to be at peace with the human beings around me like I meditate I take I try really hard to find inner peace but then I go out in public and it makes me realize I just hate humanity (laughs) it's like you're making it really easy for me to dislike you I'm not sure if I talked about this once in another prior episode but I saw a guy his way of inquiring if a bar served food was, hey, you got anything for me to chomp on? And it's like, what happened to, excuse me, please, thank you. Like, I don't know if it's an L.A. thing or if it's this, people are becoming more entitled, but it's like, I notice people are becoming more and more rude and hostile and it's it's really disturbing. Like, I think, like, if the Dalai Lama... It's like, yeah, sure, you're enlightened, pal. You live in a mountain. <laughs> it's like, you don't deal with people. If you had to wait tables, you would be an asshole. You would be really hostile towards humanity. <laughs> it's just... Um, it's really alarming. And I know for thousands and thousands of years, people have been like, no, society's crumbling. But uh, I think we're getting really close to something dark and awful if we don't watch out for it. How do we solve it? I don't know. Get a dog. Go for more walks. Go to nature more. I don't know. Maybe it's a a product, too, of uh, there's such a, you know, you see such a the rich getting richer type thing. And, you know, the people, everyone feels the world is against them now. Maybe that's it. I, 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 it's hard not to, but hey, just go watch some reality TV. It all gets better. <laughs> um, and actually we discussed some of these topics with, uh, with Bernadine Mellis. So let's get into this really good, uh, convert. It's a, a very interesting conversation. Thank you. Listen.
discuss forest for the trees uh, to start off with, though. And it, it's uh, it's a fascinating documentary, and I don't think many people actually know about Judy Berry and what she went up against. Um, but when you got involved with making that film, was, did it start with you wanting to make a film about your father, or were you aware of Judy Berry and her struggle beforehand? Um, well, actually, I was in film school at the time, and um, I ha- was taking a documentary class, and um, we were given an assignment to um, shoot observational footage of someone or something and then, um, you know, shoot an hour of footage and then cut a five-minute piece from the footage. And I happened to be um, visiting my dad at the time, and I um, decided to do the observational footage of my dad. So it was really just for an exercise. That's how it started. And um, I was going to film school on the East Coast, and my dad lives in San Francisco, so I had flown home for a vacation, and I just thought, oh, I'll do my assignment here. And um, I went to the office with him and just was shooting with him and um, Ben Rosenfeld, who you see in the film, who um, works worked with my dad at the time. And, um, you know, I have to be honest and say that I, you know, I grew up with my dad working on all these different cases, and... Um, at a certain point, you kind of stop listening, (laughs) you know, like, um, a lot of his cases were police brutality cases and prisoners' rights cases and cases where, um, you just felt like what had happened to the person in question was really unfair, but there was really no chance that my dad was going to win the case and he would, um, he did lose a lot of cases and um, it was really depressing and really hard to kind of know what to think of it all. And um, so I think just almost as partly as protection and partly because he's my dad, I, you know, and I was kind of individuating, I would, I really tuned out a lot of um, what was going on with him and what he was doing in his work, even though, Objectively, it is really interesting and really important work. But, you know, when it's your parent, it's you have a different relationship to it. So anyway, what happened for me was that when I came home with a camera, it really shifted the dynamic. And suddenly, you know, as a filmmaker, I realized that, you know, looking at my dad through the lens, it was like, wow, he's really interesting. And this case is really interesting. And it's really important. And so I learned about Judy. I've, I've been hearing about her for years because he'd been working on the case for so long. But the trial was coming up. It just happened to be coming up that spring. It was February when I was shooting this footage. And he was the trial was scheduled for April. Um so it was like suddenly I just really tuned in and I and my ear became very keen, you know, and listening to his stories about her. And I realized how amazing she was and how important this fight was and how resonant it was at that particular moment in terms of civil liberties, because, you know, this was 2002, September 11th had just happened and the FBI was being given all these right, you know, all these new permissions to do things. And so I... um just 
it just clicked like this is a really interesting story and so I came back to school I edited the piece everyone in my class agreed with me that it was he was interesting and that it was interesting material and so I actually left school um I didn't complete that semester and I I went back home and I just started shooting the film that's uh that's pretty awesome that you just quit school. I mean, it, it, it is a fascinating tale, and it's, I had not known of Judy Bear. I kind of vaguely knew about that, but it's, it's God, when you find out about how corrupt like the FBI is in situations, and that's not the only one, it's it's just it's goddamn bleak. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty devastating if you don't already kind of grow up knowing that it can be it can be really eye-opening um but it's true people don't know who judy berry was and it's funny because um if i happen to mention her or somebody asks me about my work and her name comes up they always think that she is julia butterfly hill like i'll say judy berry and she was involved with the you know forest protection movement in Northern California and Los Angeles, they'll say, oh, that, that young woman who sat in the tree um, for a year um, because Julia Butterfly, I guess, just got to be more famous. And she, I mean, she was this amazing figure who um, sat in one tree and just vowed to protect this one tree. And she named the tree and it all became, you know, became kind of a big deal. Um, but what Judy was doing you know, trying to build coalition with workers and um, but, and and change the whole face of the environmental movement and everything. Um, people don't, people don't really know about her, but I think it's because you know the work that she was trying to do was really interrupted um, by the bombing and by the arrest. And so, in a way, um, if you know my dad's case, the case that he made is is actually legitimate and they really were trying to quell her movement by associating her with terrorism when they arrested her they succeeded in doing that because you'd never heard of her and you live in california and on the east coast really people haven't heard of her um but what she was doing was really important and so if she had succeeded then i think people would know her name yeah it's it's really great that you did the film and are able to get uh her story out there. I think that's very important. And something else I, that you, I read that you, uh, that you said in an interview about how, and people don't realize that a lot of the environmental movement goes to, it's about working class people and working conditions uh, of a lot of these loggers. And that's another thing you don't, and I actually follow a lot of environmental stuff, and that is not something I think people address enough. And I thought that was a very important a point that you made about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that was really what Judy's, um, one of her most important contributions to the conversation about the environment and about conservation um, really was that she made that link between, in a way, it's very obvious once you start thinking about it, like, we're talking about the environment, we're talking about the Earth's natural resources, and the extraction of those resources and um, the development of those resources for human use involves labor. Um, so humans are going to be involved in that, you know. 
Um, but we tend to think of the environment as being this separate thing and, and from humans and, and, um, Often people will associate the environmental movement with people like basically wealthy white people who really enjoy nature and want to go hiking and, you know, just want it to remain pristine and don't really care about social justice or um, economics or people's regular workaday lives. Um, but you can't extract those two things from each other, um, you know, people's lives and the, and natural resources. So she really saw that. And, um, I think people, I think that those links have been made much more now. And I think it's harder and harder to ignore them because, um, you know, um, partly because some of the things that have to happen with the climate really have affected, um, like when Katrina happened, suddenly people realized, oh, the climate is actually a poor people's issue because, you know, poor people are going to be the ones who are hit the hardest when um, things collapse in terms of the environment or the climate or whatever. But I think before that and in Judy's time, certainly um, people really hadn't made those links. And so she came along and she said, you know, the loggers and the mill workers are the people who have their hands on the machinery. They can stop the machinery rather than antagonize them, which really Earth First had been doing in that area. You know, there was really a lot of, um, there was just an opposition between the workers and the environmentalists. And the workers saw the environmentalists as these privileged people who had no clue what it means to try to make a living, which probably was somewhat valid, um, at least in some cases. And the environmentalists just saw the loggers and the mill workers as like in cahoots with these big companies who are trying to destroy the planet. And um, she came along and said, we need to build coalition with the workers because they actually have the power to change things in a way that we don't. And not only that, then when she started talking to loggers and mill workers, it became really obvious that they knew that the overcutting was not um, and that the you know that their kids weren't going to have jobs if they kept cutting down the forest the way that they were, and they didn't agree with it you know that but those were their jobs, and they needed <laughs> to keep their jobs and they didn't want to antagonize the companies that they worked for, so they were in a bind and um, so anyway, she really saw that complexity and illuminated it for people and really changed the way that that movement was functioning. And I found that really inspiring. And that was part of why I wanted to make a film because, um, it can be really frustrating when you're aware of a lot of, you know, what's wrong with the world and you feel like people who are doing really good work aren't making those connections and aren't working together and are working in a way that's, you know, counterproductive or, um, you know, there's infighting and all that kind of thing. And so, and so she had this power to kind of bring people together and make people think differently. And, um, it's so in that sense, she was like a visionary, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very brilliant. And you don't, I, I think I, it's probably a, a human nature to to make everything us and them. I mean, it's kind of ingrained in us, sadly, uh, and we're doing it now with <laughs> with yeah. our military and stuff. But it's it's right. uh, and to because I don't think a lot of people do that. Try to communicate and understand the other side. Just on as human beings, it's 
we become very defensive, and it's uh, it's quite a, also though what you said uh, it was kind of like we think of ourselves as separate from the environment, and that just shows you the weird ego of humanity because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like man we we can't be separate like we are to be very hippy dippy Buddhist about it, but it's like we are intermingled and we we got to stop thinking that way. <laughs> yeah, it's really getting us in trouble. Yeah. Now, were you um, were you politically and socially active prior to this film? Because I would imagine that growing up uh, over the dinner table, it, it listening to your father talk about like his work of like, yeah, I'm defending a man who was murdered by the FBI, it's got to be a little heavy. <laughs> to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really heavy. And not just my dad's work, but my mom was an activist as well. And she was um, really, really committed to um, to her activism. And so our lives were very much... Um, it's hard to even think of the word. It's like we, there was no place outside of politics in our childhood. There was in our home, like my parents were divorced, but you know, with my mom and with my dad and with my mom's community and my mom's friends and with my dad and his friends, the whole world was just people who were, um, dedicated to social change and, um, didn't really ever rest, basically, you know, never kind of um, stopped thinking about it and talking about it. You couldn't go to a movie without, you know, leaving and then having some discussion of the racial politics of the film or the sexism in the film, you know, be like a Disney movie, you know, and you're like seven years old and you're just like, could we just have fun? Um, But they really, they wanted us to be aware, especially because, you know, I think they felt a really strong responsibility that, you know, raising white children in a racist society that we needed to really be aware of racism and, um, and white privilege. And, um, so, you know, just at every level we were always kind of, um, inundated with, with politics and with, um, thinking about our identity and our position in the world and, um, and so, yeah, I, it was overwhelming. And also, I mean, it, we, we were born, like, I have three siblings, so I always think of, as I always think in terms of we instead of I, but anyway, like when we were growing up, things were um, really changing um, in terms of like the movements that my parents were involved in, like they became active in the sixties when there was just so much going on. And there was these, you know, there were these huge popular movements. And then by the time, like my siblings and I came of age, that really wasn't the case. You know, it was like the eighties and nineties. And of course people were activists and everything, but it wasn't, you know, there, it didn't feel like there was all this energy and excitement to be involved in political change in quite the same way. Um, and so I, it's not like I, um, became conservative, you know, or reacted against their politics or rejected their politics. But I think that, um, it was easier to not do activism in a way because there just wasn't that much of it around. Um, 
I mean, that feels unfair to say because they're you know, there are all these movements that have continued through the 60s and that continue today. And, that will, you know, people who are just really dedicated and they don't they don't need something to be popular and like um, trendy to be a to be a part of it. But it's just like I think if you came of age in the 60s or, you know, even the early 70s, it'd be hard to ignore the activism that was going on. But for me, I kind of looked around and felt like you used the word bleak earlier. It was just, things looked pretty bleak, you know, right. You know, like Reagan was elected when I was a kid and suddenly it was like all these things my parents have been working for seemed like they really weren't going to happen. Um, and things were actually just getting worse instead of better. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was a combination of just like having grown up with so much activism and then also feeling a certain sense of despair about the world and needing a break from that. And then also just not kind of finding compelling activist groups to join. Um, I really wasn't very involved in, um, in activism, nowhere near the way that my parents were anyway. And, um, like, you know, the film that I made before The Forest for the Trees wasn't a documentary. It was a children's story, and I didn't necessarily see myself making political documentaries. But um, I guess something just sort of shifted for me. Um, when I started to learn about documentary, I got really excited about the form. And so sort of artistically, it was interesting to me. And then... Um, Judy was really inspiring to me as a thinker and, um, it was a, was sort of a wonderful way to reconnect with my dad and to honor the work that he had done all my life, which I always really respected and admired. I just felt really sad about the fact that it wasn't more, um, that it wasn't easier to win, you know, <laughs> um, the cases that he took on. So, so that's a, yeah, a long answer. I mean, I, I really wasn't, and I, I still don't really consider myself an act to me. An activist is someone like my mom who like lives their activism every day and she was is the- constantly organizing and going to meetings and putting up flyers and organizing marches. And, you know, was she involved with the weather underground as well? She was, yeah. She, um, my parents met the people from the Weather Underground when they were in Chicago in the 60s. And my mom actually moved to San Francisco with me and my siblings in part to, I guess, really primarily to, um, you know, do organizing with them. And then when they um, became an underground movement, she stayed above ground because she had four kids but she continued to work as an above ground member of that group. And then that group splintered and she became a part of the splinter group, which was called the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee. And so I grew up with the people from, um, from the weather underground until they splintered when I was like seven. And then with, you know, the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee and the people from that group, you know, um, they had a child care committee where they took care of my sister and me. And um, we just really grew up in that kind of bosom of that organization. That's a lot of, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of intense um, situations and thought and dialogue for a child to be 
to be around. I mean, it's like it's, I'm surprised he didn't like rebel and put up Re- Ronald Reagan posters. <laughs> that, would know. Be, that would be your <laughs> punk rock. To, to... <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, my version of rebellion was to like be befriend the preppy kids at my school. And, um, you know, they weren't Republicans or anything like that, but they certainly weren't radical in any way. And, um, and they just like to hang out and, um, you know, have a good time and tune the world out. And that's kind of what I did for a while when I was in high school. But yeah, I was, I mean, it was really an intense environment to grow up in, but it was also very loving, very, you know, my mom was incredibly, um, loving parent and her friends were totally delighted to have these kids around and really adored us. And, um, you know, there were lots of problems, but there was a lot about it that was really beautiful. And, um, I don't, I never questioned their politics or their worldview. I always believed that what they said was true. And I mean, we grew up in a pretty like poor working class neighborhood that mostly African-American families on our street. And I went to school at a public school. And I mean, you could see the things that they were saying were true. You know what I mean? Um, so, and I, you know, I thought that the, I thought that Reagan was completely nuts because, (laughs) um, remember like how terrified we all were of nuclear war. Oh, yeah. I, I'm guessing we're in the same ballpark of age because of what you were saying. So, yeah, it's like I remember my my father cried when Reagan got shot. I don't. Oh, my God. I don't think he would have cried if I got shot. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Did you grow up in Southern California or? Uh, no, I grew up in Chicago, actually. So. Oh, OK. Um, so you, so you're, you grew up in a Republican family. My, you know, we were very working class and my grandfather, uh, was very democratic. My father, for some insane reason, was a Republican. It was like, he laid asphalt. I'm like, you're, you're in love with a party that has no interest in what you do. It's like, they don't want Right, you. <laughs> right. But maybe it's that thing where you're like, but one day maybe I will be rich and then I want, Oh yeah. and then was, I want. He was one of those delusional bastards. He, he, he. He prayed at the altar of the lottery ticket. <laughs> oh, man. A delusional yeah. sad man he was. He, uh, <laughs> he, he, sure, he was an Arthur Miller character if there ever was one. <laughs> wow. That sounds intense, too. <laughs> oh, it was very intense childhood. We had uh, a very Irish Catholic working class garbage. Um, uh-huh. But so when to, to get back to you, because this show is not about me family <laughs> but but i, I, I but it's I, an interesting contrast that's for oh, sure sure, absolutely that your dad cried when he was shot and in my family it was like <laughs> devastating trauma when he was elected it was like a pall was cast over our house and nothing would ever be it was like our own little mini nuclear war you know had been a nuclear bomb had been dropped it was like so devastating and and it's not like they were excited about the Democrats or anything like that, but I don't think they thought that someone like Reagan would get in. No, and the Democrats just, it, I mean, they just seem to be more and continuously moving further to the right. I mean, I I can't see anything different for the most part about what's going on with the, this administration than 
much that went on with the the Bush administration. I mean, I know it's really it's so disturbing. Yeah, it's and we. I mean, I definitely voted for him the first round, but I I supported Jill Stein the second time because I was just like, I can't get on board with this bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's so disappointing. Of course, my dad wasn't disappointed. I don't know if you guys talked about current electoral politics, but he, you know, he's from Chicago and he's been following Obama and he just, he actually had some serious arguments with friends when Obama was running the first time because he just refused to be positive about it. And he was incredibly cynical and kind of predicted everything that was going to happen and kept saying that... Yeah, and his, some of his friends got really angry at him because they just wanted to believe, and I had some arguments with him, you know? And then it's like, cut to three years later, and everybody's saying, okay, yeah, right, Dennis, you were right, you know? That's really amazing. I guess if you followed his his um, path closely the way my dad did in um, Illinois politics, you could kind of see that he... I don't know. I guess my dad just sees him as a very cynical politician who um, isn't necessarily moved by conscience or ethics the way that we all sort of hoped he would be. Personally, I don't, you know, I don't lay it all at Obama's door, but that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I've been very... But it just made me realize that both of these parties are full of shit and they, they will side with the warmongers and the and the corporations, and they don't give a shit about the people or the, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. But the, Boy, you probably got on, like, a house on fire with my dad. <laughs> we actually, we didn't... Uh, you we, didn't talk about that stuff. No, we got into definite some current policy stuff, uh, but it was very interesting, but we didn't get into Obama directly to that. I regret that we, that we didn't. Hey, we're going to get right back to the conversation with Bernadine in just a second, but I just wanted to take this moment out to thank you again for listening to my show. If you like it, do me a huge favor, write a review on iTunes, give it five stars. Uh, If you take a screenshot photo of it, I'll send you some conversations with Matt Dwyer stickers or some other bullshit I'm going to have made up. Also, what would be incredibly helpful is if you could donate some money to my show on the link there on uh, on the page, if you can, uh, Dustin Marshall, who produces these shows and edits them and runs Feral Audio, does this all uh, on his own. It is his source of income. We need this money to travel, to buy equipment, to do these interviews. It's not cheap, and we're doing this. We're giving this to you for free because we want to. So if you can help us... That would be great. If you can't afford to give money, I understand these times are fucking sucko. <laughs> but you could, if you're going to buy some stuff, you know, you could buy a lot of Cheerios on Amazon and you get a case of Cheerios cereal. And, uh, and not that I'm plugging Cheerios, but you could buy, and it's way cheaper than the grocery store. If you buy that, if you go to my link on, on Feral Audio and uh, buy those, those Cheerios through that, I get a kickback of that money, and and so does Dustin, and it helps us out immensely. 
Also, if you can, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire. Also on Tumblr, I have a, I post there a lot about the shows and past episodes and live shows that I'm doing. So that would be really, really great. Okay, I'm done with these plugs. We can get back to the great conversation with Bernadine Mellis. It's good so far, isn't it? But but after you made this film, did that sh- sh- uh, the f- film about your did that shift you to being more political with uh, or social with your filmmaking? Would you or did you? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I worked on that film for a really long time, and um, <clears throat> and the whole process, um, it was very. Um, it was pretty transformative for me, actually, because I think, um, you know, I think when you're making a documentary, I don't know if this is true for you about your show, too, but you just sort like you start out with a lot of questions and curiosity and you really hope that you learn something along the way. Like, you you know, I'm, I mean, my professor um would say if you already know exactly what you're going to say in your film, then you don't really need to make the film, you know, like you're kind of going to to try to make some sort of discovery uh, along the way. And I feel like for me, I mean, it was partly following the case and um, not knowing how the case would resolve, but it was also uh, personally, um, it was kind of a return to the world that I'd grown up in as a kid, just like, I was suddenly um, surrounded again by people who had committed their lives to social change and to justice. And so, you know, not just my dad, but the whole legal team and not just the legal team, but all the earth firsters who, um, you know, we'd come down every day and pack the courtroom and who were organizing to let people know what was going on and were the people who had worked with Judy and were still doing forest protection and coming down from tree sits to like see what happened with the trial and people who were also involved in other um, movements who were, you know, who would come to some of the events and because they were in solidarity with this, Um, project of the trial. And so it was like, suddenly I was in that world again, you know, surrounded by those people. And it was kind of a chance for me to, as an adult, look at that life, the life of of a dedicated activist, somebody whose entire being is committed to social change and whose everything they do is moved by their passion for justice, you know? And, um, I, um, I really was so struck by what a um like the thing that I'd taken away as a kid like we're just going to always be losing and no matter how hard my parents fight um people like your dad are going to vote for Reagan even if it's not in their best interest and I that kind of just um despair about the world and about politics um that was what I had taken away as a child. And I feel like for me working on this film, it's not like um, I didn't feel those things again and see that those forces at work again. But I, what I saw was also just um, how good a life it is to be an activist. Like even if you are losing and even if you feel despair and rage and all those things, it's a really meaningful life. And it's a life where you're truly connected to other humans 
and not just because you're in love with them and you marry them or you have kids with them or they're biologically related to you, but because you share core beliefs and values and you believe in fairness and in kindness and in generosity and in, um, you know, people being able to have good work and good lives and, um, be able to breathe clean air and, you know, um, that, that the people who are working on that case had something that a lot of people who, um, have really great jobs and like, I mean, not to be cliche, but like people who have a lot of money and look really great that they don't have. Um, and so, um, I think I realized that the life of an activist is actually really an enviable one. And that kind of meaning and connection is something that people in this time and place that we live in, in this country are really, um, longing for. And, you know, to feel like really a part of something meaningful that's bigger than yourself. I think, um, I, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no. So just, anyways, that was just, that was really great for me to, to see that after feeling like, oh, that life, you just slog away and you always lose, you know? That was like one way to look at it. And then I found this whole new way of looking at it after working on the film. But what were you going to say? Oh, I just, I feel like we, what you were saying is like, I feel like we, our current time is, there isn't a lot of, um, I hope we're heading towards it, but there is not a lot of community or it's a very self-involved era and, and narcissistic yeah. and it's it's very alarming and i have to say as a guy who pursued showbiz and uh, that thing it's like it if you i pursued it for so long it, it just i it started tearing me up inside because mm. and then i started i finally had an epiphany and was like all right i'm not gonna uh, you know, once I started doing things that were, I would not call myself an activist, but I definitely became involved with, uh, you know, like this uh, prison activist group, Jail Guitar Doors and other things. It's oh wow! It it becomes um, it you start feeling like a, a more of a human being. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's, and you you think... meet other people that you really respect and admire, and yeah, and even with my show, it's like that's a lot of it. It's like once in a while I'll have some. Uh, you know, lighter subject matters, but I, I really prefer talking to people like you and your father and, and, uh, because it, it's, 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 it wakes you up and it makes you realize, you know, life is participating and helping others and being involved, not mm. shutting yourself off <clears throat> from the, <laughs> and hoping you make a million dollars doing some right. shitty garbage on television. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I it's there there's something really sad about it cuz I think the things that were kind of that we grow up thinking are going to be really great um can be pretty disappointing. But if you look like if you think about that desire to be famous or something it's like maybe maybe underneath that is just like a feeling that you want to be important to people who you care about and respect, you know, you want to have like some sort of a contribution and you want to feel like your work means something to people. Like that's a really understandable thing to want, but, um, 
it's hard to feel like you're going to have that if, um, if you're working like in a cubicle somewhere or like in a factory or something. And so then in this, like in America, it seems like the people who everyone's really excited about and who people feel like, oh, that person's really great. They're doing something awesome. They're making a contribution are famous. So as a kid, you're like, well, that's the good thing to be is famous. But if there was some other way to imagine being respected and making a contribution and feeling like people cared about what you were doing and getting to work with people who are doing really good things, um, then probably a lot more people would want that, you know, but I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's represented to us as a possibility. It's like make a lot of money and people will respect you or be famous and people will respect you. And it's just such a hollow kind of alternative to, um, a life of obscurity and, um, meaningless labor. Yeah. I feel like fame and wealth have become the new desired and like i think people have replaced that with enlightenment it's like yeah they would totally. much rather have that than be to know the secrets of the universe <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally it's really true well because i guess you look at those people and you feel you feel like maybe they figured out the secrets in the universe you know and that's why they're that's why everyone loves them so much. Yeah, that's that's why they get lip implants and have uh, multiple divorces <laughs> and pill yeah. problems, because they figured yeah. it out. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so. I, saw, I saw this thing on your, uh, the YouTube. Oh, yeah, the YouTube thing. Um, and that, that, because of the prison thing I work with, it interests me. But it's also, uh, it's weird because... I'm looking for the title of it, and I've, I can't seem to... I also remember... It's a prison birth project. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. I just found yeah. it. As you, but it's like, that was... It's like another one of those things where you... When I saw that, I was like, I don't think that dawns on people, that that is... That there are women who are pregnant and end up in jail, and it's just... Like, what happens next? Yeah, I don't even think... Yeah. You know, people just always, like... I think prisoners are... Uh, uh, human beings that people just think like, yeah, well, blah, screw them. <laughs> it's like, right, them exactly. Like, well, they fucked up and they deserve it. So yeah. who cares what happens to them? And the, was like, I, I think a lot of people forget too. People that end up in prison often are there because one, that, you know, there's an, a, maybe an addiction problem and our society doesn't set it up to, you know, we don't, we don't uh, offer help for addicts. And so drug addicts often right. have to result, uh, resort to crime Right. As well as like sometimes you're poor and you gotta steal a goddamn loaf of bread or something. It's like right. And that that perhaps a pregnant woman can't. You know, it's it's the levels of it of I think what people don't think about uh, with that situation are overwhelming. Yeah. What made you? Uh, what drew you to that? Well, I yeah. I mean, I also see the prison system as like deeply, deeply wrong and um, basically at every level. And I, um, you know, like kids I went to high school with who came from wealthy families and were white, um, you know, would carry around 
amounts of drugs that if you were African-American and standing on a street corner, you would go to jail for 25 years. You know what I mean? And these kids would never, ever get in trouble for that kind of thing. And, and so that just the kind of like racism of the criminal justice system to me is like so, so obvious and just a crime in itself. And so I'm really interested in um, supporting prisoners' rights work and um, prison reform. And um, But it's not something that I, it's not a form of activism that I do personally, partly because I think, I mean, hats off to you for doing, for being involved in that group. I think it's really, really hard work to do because you just confront um, such incredible suffering and such incredible Injustice. It's just, it's like, I find it overwhelming to the degree that I've, you know, been acquainted, intimate with um, prisoners issues. It's, I just, it just makes me so angry. And um, so, yeah, the situation is just so bleak. I think it's really, really hard to do that work, but I really believe in it. And um, anyway, so there's a group here I teach at Mount Holyoke College and in the five colleges here in Western Massachusetts. I also teach at Smith and at UMass. And um, there's there's a group here in Amherst, Mass, called the Prison Birth Project. And um, it's a really small nonprofit organization that was started by two um, two women who had had their own kind of experiences with the um, the prison system and. Um, realized what you're talking about, that something that people who aren't, who don't confront um, prison or the juvenile justice system may not realize, which is that there are all these women who get locked up and um, what happens if they're pregnant when they get locked up? What happens with their pregnancy? What happens with the birth? What happens with the child? So these two women um, kind of knew about those issues and decided they felt like they had to do something about it. And so they started this organization and the organization provides support and advocacy for, um, for incarcerated women who are pregnant or who have had, um, kids while, while they've been inside. And, um, so I found out about the organization and I just thought their work was really, really amazing. And people who are listening to the show really encourage you to look up their website. You can just Google prison birth project and support them. If you can, their work is really groundbreaking and um, powerful anyway. And so as a teacher, what I thought um, would be really great is to have my students make a documentary about the work that they do. Cause I teach documentary filmmaking and um, so what you saw on YouTube was actually not something I made. It's something that a student of mine made. And it's not a documentary. It was actually – so what happened is I went to the people, um, the organizers of the Prison Birth Project, and I asked them if they would be interested in having video content made about their organization. And they were really interested, but they didn't need a documentary. What they needed was a promotional – a short promotional video that they could – use um, in their, they were doing um, a Mother's Day kind of fundraising drive. And so um, last spring, I worked with them and um, a couple of students from my class, and then it ended up really being one student who made the promotional piece for their group. So that's something that, um, I guess that's a way that I kind of can 
express some of my activist impulses as, as a teacher, kind of connect, you know, showing films that um, can illuminate some of the, you know, social just big social justice kind of questions for my students, and then also getting students to um, figure out things that they really care about and that matter to them, and then um, supporting them to make films about those issues. So that was that was a an example of a collaboration with a student and a local organization. It's it's a it's a it's a really great piece. It's like five minutes long, but it's it really affected me because it, it was like I, as a guy who who uh, works with this organization, I was like, oh shit, that didn't even dawn on me of that being right. It's which I don't think anybody, and it's like granted whatever the individual does to land themselves in prison, uh, that child is innocent and deserves proper care. And it, it, it just was terrifying. Some of the thoughts. Yeah. It's, if you know the kind of conditions that people live in in prison, it's really scary to think about being pregnant. And one thing I didn't say about working on that project is that I, um, I had a baby this summer, so I actually was pregnant um, while my student was working on that piece. And, um, you know, probably being pregnant was part of what motivated me to want to do work with that group, even though I've always thought their work is really great. Um but yeah, I mean, you're so vulnerable when you're pregnant. You're there's a lot going on physically for you, but you're also concerned about the baby, and you want to take good care of yourself, and hope that you know you get good nutrition so the baby's all right, and all of that. And just unimaginable to be to think about being locked up and having to, um, you know, just I don't know, even just at the most basic level, like. Um, eat prison food and not in, you know, and you, you, sometimes you are nauseous and other times you're super duper hungry all the time. And I mean, that's, it seems like such a small thing, but, um, there's just so much that you're dealing with and all the fears about bringing someone into the world and all of that. And, um, so, you know, and it's not like if you're pregnant and you're locked up, you're given special privileges or anything like that. The other, to the contrary. And the other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize um, is that um, in a lot of states, pregnant women, when they're in labor, are actually shackled to their hospital beds. Um, yeah, because the... Um, the justification for that is that they would be a flight risk, which anyone who knows anything about childbirth knows that there is no possible way that when you once you were in labor that you could like run away, um, escape a hospital. But they um, so what it really ends up being is just a punitive measure, just sort of like we're going to make this already physically hellish experience as bad as it could possibly be. And we're going to humiliate you and remind you of your status as a prisoner, even while you're going through this primal um, experience. And actually, in California, there's a really amazing um, prisoner's rights um, network. And um, they actually 
um, got the state to ban shackling of pregnant women in California not so long ago. I think it was sometime last year. Um, and in California, there's a really amazing organization called um, California Coalition for Women Prisoners, and there's another one called Legal Services for Prisoners with Children, and they and both of those organizations do really awesome work um, in the state of California. So if your listeners are in California, I mean, I know you are, but that doesn't mean your listeners <laughs> are, does it? They're, uh, they're all over the, uh, <laughs> the damned world, uh, thankfully. Yeah. That's uh, it's, it's it's astounding because a woman who's nine, I would say eight months pregnant. Maybe I'm I've I can't I'm guessing because I've never been pregnant, but I have been bloated from beer, which might be similar. But I mean, you can't maybe you can't you can't fucking sprint, let alone during labor. Oh my god, it's <laughs> absurd. It is it is really it's just um really all it. It just seems like hatred, you know, it's just sort of like an expression of like, you're in the prison system and therefore you, we hate you and we're going to make your life hell. Yeah, we know. Which, I'm sorry. I, I just, no, no. What you oh, it's just we no longer reform in prison. The, the organization I work with uh, was founded by Wayne Kramer, who was in, I'm not sure if you're aware of the band, the MC5 in the 60s. Um, also very political radical band <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, they had the FBI after him but he ended up going to oh, prison wow. for exactly what I spoke about uh addiction you know and he mm-hmm. was selling drugs but he said he was in the last point of prison where they w- offered programs like uh, you know music classes and things and he was like he ended up studying with I always forget who but this famous jazz musician who was in there oh, for, wow. for drug charges and and, uh, you know, furthered his musical knowledge. And, you know, then Wayne went on to, like, score films and television shows, which oh he probably would have been able to do without that education he got in prison, oddly. But, uh, you know, and, and and then they stopped it. So he goes to prisons right. and teaches songwriting. And that's... And, oh, and, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, he founded it with Billy Bragg. And I just help... Um, like, I organize comedy shows to raise money and, and, and try to help fundraise and awareness i don't i really would love to go to one of the prisons i'm sure it would depress the shit out of me but i would really really like to experience the shows they do and see that it's really i'm sure it's i mean there's videos of these prisoners weeping because they're getting to hear this music and Mm. and there's one guy who's like says like this is the first time i felt free in decades (laughs) it's just it's wow it's amazing that's incredible. Yeah, people it's, people who go into prisons and teach and do that kind of work, I just really, I really respect that because it's, it's hard. I mean, just I worked on a project, a film project once and um, shot an inter- a few interviews um, in a prison, actually in Cal- a women's prison in California. <clears throat> and um, it was, a, it was actually about like, um, women's medical issues in prison and this group of um, prisoners who have been organizing to get better medical care, you know, for people who are HIV positive or had hep C or, um, you know, because that's another thing that's, I think that people don't really think about is that um, 
prisoners are just like everybody else. And some of them are sick, you know, just like some of them are pregnant. And um, what is the medical care? And they just, there's so much neglect and abuse. Um, so anyway, we went into this prison and interviewed these women and um, like, just go, you know, just all the different um parts of the process of getting into the prison and, you know, like all the different gates and all the different passes and, you know, all of that is just, even that kind of just, um, I think most people have no idea what that feels like to go through all those gates and have all those doors be locked behind you. You know, when you enter a place, I mean, it's really scary. And just at this like animal level, you know, you're just like, I need to be able to get out of here again, you know? And like the door just, you know, the gate slams shut behind you and you see some guard walk by jingling with like these keys and guns and, you know, and, um, and then, you know, we're interviewing, we were interviewing this one woman and she was 22 years old and she was talking about her work and how she'd been inspired by this other woman who had since died and, um, and while she was inside of cancer and this is a really sad story, this woman had been an activist and they wouldn't let her out on compassionate release so that she could die with her family and with her daughter. And so she, you know, died in like the prison hospital bed or whatever. And anyway, um, but this, this young woman was an activist and she was all inspired and she was really um, tough and funny and smart and great. And um, she was talking about the different kind of groups and networks that she was a part of inside. And um, I did, you know, I didn't really know her story. I didn't, we were just talking to her about these health issues and I'll never forget when she said, Oh yeah, well I met her through the lifer group that I'm in. And, you know, she'd been locked up since she was 16 years old and she was in prison for life. And she was only 22. It was like she she did something when she was 16. And she was never going to get out of prison. And she was so young. At the time, she was like 10 years younger than me. And it was just like, this is not, I don't care what she did. You know what I mean? Like, this is just not right. And I can't believe I live in a country where that is normal. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think of the dumb things I did in my 20s, and, you know, you just, you don't know who you are, you don't know what's up, and it's like 16 people. 16. It's like Who knows what was going on with her parents or her community or, yeah. Yeah, our prison situation is, is quite screwed. It really is, and yeah, and so... Um, it is, it's really hard. Like you sort of understand also partly why there isn't more of a public outcry about this because nobody wants to know that that's what's going on. And that's like what you said at the beginning of our conversation. Like people are just like, ah, you're in jail. Who gives a shit? You know, like you screwed up. Nobody cares. But I think if people really knew what was going on and who was inside and why they were, what they were locked up for, like drug crimes and that kind of thing, like what you were saying, then a lot more people would be really disturbed about it, but nobody knows because nobody wants to know because going in there is like going on a trip to hell 
And uh, like when I, after we did those interviews, I came out and I was like, I didn't even want to get out of bed for like three days. You know, it was just so depressing um, and so overwhelming at the same time that it was really inspiring to find out about the work that these prisoners were doing. It was like, but they shouldn't, I mean, they, they have all this energy and, you know, they could be organizing in the community and bring all this positive energy to our world. And they're stuck inside really for no reason. It's, they're not a danger to society. Obviously they're trying to create positive change inside the prisons. You know what I mean? They're not like trying to kill people or steal stuff or anything, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, but I, I shouldn't even get me started talking about that. Cause I'll just go on. What, it, what are some, uh, projects that you have coming up? Is there anything coming up? That you... Yeah, I'm working on a couple of projects right now, and one of them is almost done, and it's actually a totally unrelated topic. Um, it's actually about funeral arts. That sounds and, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's been super interesting. It's um, it's about um, I in the in the film I um the main subjects are one of them is a woman who's involved with um the green burial movement. And so she's trying to start a green cemetery in the area where she lives. And she's really interesting because she used to be an embalmer and undertaker. And she, um, you know, had gone to funeral school and was working at this family funeral home and would embalm bodies. And like, I guess basically one day she just, a woman came into the, um, into the funeral parlor, I mean, a woman's body, and she was embalming her. And she said the woman was like around the same age that she was at the time. And um, she just identified with her and she just suddenly thought like, wow, like this is not how I would want my last moments on earth to be, you know, to have my body embalmed and filled with chemicals and put into a hardwood casket and then into a concrete vault in the earth. And she just realized that she didn't believe in that way of burying bodies. And so she kind of went through an identity crisis. And then now she's involved in trying to raise awareness about the environmental um, impact of conventional burial practices and, um, and trying to get people excited about green burial. So that's one person in it. And then, Another person does um, home funerals. So um, she talks about how one might allow a person to die at home and then actually have a wake and a funeral at home. And, um, you know, that you don't necessarily have to call the authorities and have a body taken to a funeral home and, um, and have it be this really um, basically like alienating experience to confront death that you could that you could have like an intimate experience with the death of a loved one and even wash the body yourself and so and then there's this other person who's an architect who designed I mean it hasn't been built but she she kind of conceptualized and designed a body composting site um, for urban burial because she did all this research and realized that like human bodies could be composted and that they, that their bodies could create this really rich soil and that it could be a solution to the fact that, that cemeteries are filling up and 
Um, it also could help rebuild topsoil. Um, she's a really interesting person. Um, anyway, so the film kind of follows, it, it interviews these three people and their ideas about um, alternatives to conventional burial practices. That sounds really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's been so interesting for me because it's the kind of thing, again, that you don't really think about, you know, like someone dies and you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, unless you have a really strong religious practice that you that your family does when someone dies, most people just kind of call the funeral home and then you don't really necessarily even know what they do with the body, you know. Um, puppet so, shows a lot of times. A lot of people don't know that that goes on in funeral homes. They do secret puppet shows with dead bodies. Oh, my God. I was making that up. <laughs> okay, I, I'm ready to believe anything. I was just make, I mean, maybe they do, but uh, I was just making a joke out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, though. I mean, you don't know what goes on in those basements. Exactly. I think Six Feet Under actually did a lot to, like, make people start thinking about what happens after, you know, to a body when it goes to a funeral home. I'm sure some of those people got to be a little weird in the head. And so, I mean, I would... <laughs> I mean, not all of them, but I'm sure there's some pretty, not to get too dark, but, you know, they they get weird. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, you got to just hope that they're respectful. But still, it's like, you know, like, why exactly do we remove all the bodily fluids from a dead person's body and then, like, fill them with formaldehyde? Like, that's a lot worse than a puppet show, actually. <laughs> yes, it is. And where can um, people find your? I, I know uh, your your forest of the, for the trees is on Netflix, but where can people like follow you or keep up on uh, the the things you have coming out? The green burial film and stuff. Um, that well, it's not done yet. So, um, but they can go to my. Um, if they if you go to redbirdfilms dot com. That's kind of how to get in touch with me and find out about my film when it comes out and all that good and stuff. Do you do the the Twitter? What's that? Do you are you on Twitter by chance? I'm not on Twitter. I am. I really have to. I, it's terrible, and I should get over it. But I'm like a little bit of a luddite, so I actually don't have a Facebook page. I've never been on Facebook. I don't have a Twitter account. I don't have a Tumblr. Um, I admire you. <laughs> I, I don't even awesome. use a cell phone. Like I'm talking to you on my landline right now. I have a cell phone, but I don't use it. You're you're almost Amish. <laughs> I basically might as well be Amish, which is pretty inconvenient if you're an artist who's trying to get your work out into the world. It's not very clever of me, but um, I think probably when my film is actually done, I will have to make some concessions so that people know it exists. Um, but I see that as like a strategic departure from my Amish lifestyle. It's not... <laughs> I'm doing, I, I may do it strategically, but in principle, I will always try to avoid things like Twitter. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking out the time to speak with me. I really enjoyed this and you were really great and interesting. So thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for your interest and it was great talking.
Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Um, explore the other shows on Feral Audio. Support podcasting. It's, a, I think, one of the more important medias going on right now. Fight the power. Power to the people. I love you.
the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.